Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, I'm Vershawn Young, host of New Books in African American Studies, the interview series where writers of African American life, culture, arts, and sciences discuss their new books. Today, I had the opportunity to speak with Daniel Sharfstein, author of The Invisible Line, Three American Families and the Secret Journey from Black to White, published by the Penguin Press in 2011. In the early part of the 20th century, several novels constituting a genre called the passing narrative depicted African Americans who had skin light enough to pass for white. This social phenomenon, which was sociologically difficult to study because it risked exposure of racial identity at a time when being black could get you killed, was often depicted in literary form in such novels as Charles Chestnut's House Behind the Cedars, James Weldon Johnson's The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man, and Walter White's Flight. Now in the 21st century, passing can be examined from an historical, genealogical, even legal perspective as Daniel Sharfstein does in his brilliant new book. Please listen to our discussion of it. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Vershawn. Today we're discussing a truly unique book on American history, law, and race, written by Daniel Sharstein. It's called The Invisible Line, Three American Families and the Secret Journey from Black to White, published by the Penguin Press this year, 2011. Sharstein's book details the black racial histories of three families and both the legal and social circumstances that led to their becoming white. Sharfstein's book falls within the genre of neo-passing narratives, books that expand our understanding of what it means to cross the color line before and after Jim Crow and legal segregation. We're delighted to have Daniel Sharfstein, author of The Invisible Line, to talk with us today about his book. Daniel, can you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I grew up in Maryland, outside of Washington, D.C., and um, uh, growing up, I, I had a father who told us stories about when he met Martin Luther King in college and uh, marched on Washington, and I, I grew up in a house that had lots of great books, and by the time I was in high school, I, I had found uh, black skin, white masks uh, on our shelves, and uh, this was uh, a book that I really connected with. Uh, and then in uh, the 11th grade, we were assigned uh, Invisible Man to read. And I was lucky enough to get the flu right at that moment. Uh, so I was home for a week and had lots of time to read the book. And it, it really just changed the way I see the world. So... When I, when I got to college, I, I knew I wanted to take some classes on African-American history and literature. And I 
wound up on my first day of school in a pre-1920 African-American literature class where the professor was talking about uh, the spirituals and getting very, very excited. And all of a sudden, he disappeared under the table. Uh, this was Professor Werner Solers at, at Harvard University. And all of us, we, we were seated around a small seminar table, and, and the students just, we, we all looked at each other, wondering what was going on. And then he popped back up uh, and started cranking a 78 record player, and Paul Robeson's voice filled the room. And I, I knew then that I was going to take that class. Uh, and maybe I knew then that this was something that would uh, be more than, than just a class. Uh, in that class, I, I was first introduced to the works of uh, Charles Chestnut and W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, both to whom were really influential in my thinking, uh, in the thinking that led to the invisible line. Uh, but actually, the immediate catalyst for this book was uh, the summer after my junior year in college, uh, summer in 1993, I went to South Africa uh, to work on a nonpartisan voter education project uh, in the townships outside of Bloemfontein. Uh, it was the summer before South Africa's first free elections. And uh, I worked with a number of longtime anti-apartheid activists, and they said that they had all been classified as African, uh, which was, I guess, the, the black designation by the government, uh, except for one person we worked with who had been classified as colored, which was the mixed race designation. And she said uh, that what she actually was not mixed at all, uh, easily could have been classified as African. But in the 1950s, when the apartheid government was taking a census to fix people's racial designations. The census taker knew her father, who had been a police officer, and thought he'd honor his service, honor their friendship, uh, by putting a C by their names instead of an A. Hmm. And the, the idea that, uh, you know, we think of race in South Africa as something that was inevitable. You know, it was backed by uh, the best mid-20th century pseudoscience. Uh, it was backed by the full power of a modern police state. Uh, and at the same time, it was really a revelation to me that it could be also the product of individual relationships, community dynamics, and really just, just one man's whim. And when I returned to the U.S. that fall, I immediately started looking for examples of how the same things could have happened here. And that's when I first started reading court cases where courts had to determine whether people were white or black. Mm -hmm. And we should uh, tell the listeners that right now you are um, uh, a professor of law at Vanderbilt University. That's right, uh, in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And, and actually one of the great things about being in Nashville is um, uh, the... Uh, Charles Chestnut and W.E.B. Du Bois's papers are at Fisk University, uh, and uh, so are John Mercer Langston's papers. And in Langston's papers, I, I found correspondence by uh, one of the main figures in my book, uh, a, 
uh, actually John Mercer Langston's brother-in-law, a man named Orandatus Simon Bolivar Wall. And you've already told us a little bit about how you have come to um, write the book. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the three families that you detail in the book, the Gibsons, the Walls, and the Spencers. Sure. So uh, this book follows three families who cross the color line and assimilate into white communities at different points in American history. And the first family, the Gibsons, they assimilated into a Welsh and Scots-Irish farming community in the South Carolina backcountry right before the revolution. And for them, uh, becoming white was really a, a function of their rising social mobility. Uh, very soon after they moved into South Carolina, from uh, originally from Virginia and through North Carolina, uh, they became one of the wealthiest landowning families uh, in in their little region, uh, uh, in the Pee River Basin, and they, uh, in a way, uh, they reached a point where they weren't black, they weren't white, they were planters, and that's what really mattered. And their children married into the most powerful families uh, around, and so they were accepted as white, and really it was a starting point for a rise that, that led them to the, uh, really to the height of, of the southern planter elite in the 19th century. And actually, uh, uh, one of the descendants wound up uh, on uh, the board of, of the University of Kentucky, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I, I was struck by um, how influential uh, some of the writers that you've already mentioned um, in your discussion um, are, are it's to, to the construction of the book. For instance, um, you take Charles Chestnut's um, passing novel, The House Behind the Cedars, as the um, title of your introduction, um, and you epigraph um, Ralph Ellison uh, uh, in the book. Can you uh, tell us, um, for instance, why House Behind the Cedars is an important title for your introduction. Sure, I, you know, I, I, when I was uh, interviewing one of the living descendants of uh, one of the three families, uh, I, it, I met with a man who was the great grandson of Orandata Simon Bolivar Wall, uh, and the, the Wall family was was a family of. Uh, uh, ardent abolitionists and civil rights activists who uh, became white in Washington, D.C. in the early 20th century, really right at the dawn of Jim Crow. Uh, And for them, their story was the closest to a a classic passing narrative. Uh, And uh, their great-grandson was a man who lived in a house that was hidden from the road by uh, cops of trees, and when I asked them what kind of trees they were, uh, uh, among them they were cedars, uh, and I, I immediately thought uh, of, of Chestnut's novel. Uh, and Chestnut's novel is, is a remarkable novel in many ways. Uh, for, for me, it really resonated uh, because it was uh, so uh, uh, perceptive about the role of law in the production of, of racial categories. 
uh, the one of the main uh, one of the uh, uh, key characters in in the early sequences of the novel uh, uh, was a judge who uh, told one of the main characters, you know, here in North Carolina, you are legally black because of our uh, North Carolina had a one eighth rule, uh, but if you move to South Carolina, which had a different designation of of who's black and who's white, uh, you can actually be white. So so why don't you move there? Uh, and uh, you know that was, uh, I mean, Chestnut, uh, his fiction and also his essays are really just uh, such brilliant meditations on uh, uh, not just the ironies of race, but also uh, the, the the place of law in in our understanding of it. Mm-hmm. And if I remember correctly, there's another aspect to that discussion between the judge and John, that main character uh, in Chestnut's novel, that's also important, I think, to what you mm-hmm. uh, detail in your book. And that is, um, one, John was, was interested in also becoming a lawyer um, mm-hmm. and, and wanted to apprentice with the judge. And, and being white and a lawyer <laughs> would be more advantageous uh, to him. Uh, but the other thing that seems to, I think, um, need a little bit more uh, discussion about is just how even being a lawyer and now being legally classified as white um, uh, in another state was not in and of itself um, uh, a panacea for race relations, right? Mm-hmm. So when it's some of the families that you talk about in your book for instance, um, let's say the Jennings family uh, and becoming a, a, a planter and um, becoming accepted in the community as white, these families still face some uh, uh, racial prejudice or they were um, uh, susceptible to um, uh, uh, racial interactions at the time. Is that, is that not correct? Yeah, so, uh, it, you know, in, uh, so the, the Gibson family, uh, you know, by uh, 1800, they are really not just white, but they're on their way to becoming, you know, the epitome of white privilege. Uh, and at the same time, there was a memory of race uh, that followed them, uh, that, that, that seemed to echo. Uh, so... Uh, they moved from South Carolina to Mississippi and and uh, uh, eventually Louisiana and actually up to Lexington, Kentucky. And uh, in a, uh, I, I found a, a memoir of a descendant, uh, uh, and he talked about asking his father uh, why they had dark complexions. And uh, he said he had he had heard stories that they descended from uh, a gypsy maiden who had married uh, a younger uh, uh, child of an English lord. Uh, and there are a number of these stories that that the Gibsons told about themselves. Uh, it, you know, they were descended from gypsies, or they were Portuguese Huguenots, or Sephardic Jews, and uh, always about explaining their, their dark complexions. Uh, at the same time, what, what 
is really interesting is becoming white was never truly an escape from race. Mm-hmm. Uh, with all three families, uh, becoming white meant uh, having to think very carefully about what it meant to be white in a slave society or a segregated society, uh, how to uh, interact with black people, how to talk about them. And I think for, for many of these families, uh, most tragically, how, how to hate them. Uh, you, you know, for the Gibsons, uh, uh, there was a descendant who was in the Kentucky legislature and voted against the 14th Amendment, ratifying the 14th Amendment. Uh, there was a member of the family, uh, his brother uh, helped uh, devise the, uh, uh, helped create Tulane University and, and uh, part of that, uh, uh, his contribution to Paul Tulane's philanthropic request uh, was, uh, it was a request originally written um, uh, for the education of young persons in New Orleans. And, uh, and this uh, Gibson descendant um, uh, inserted the word white between young and persons. Mm. Uh, so, you know, becoming white was, was not an escape from race. Uh, you know, it's very easy for white people to, uh, you know, tune out uh, anything having to do with race and African Americans and think that it has nothing to do with them. Uh, but it, what I found was there's uh, no sure way of establishing yourself as white and, and living a white identity than hating black people. Mm-hmm. At, at, earlier when I mentioned the um, Jennings family, I, 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 I probably misspoke. I was thinking about uh, Jennings um, as part of the Wall family and remembering a, um, an episode that occurred, I think, in a chapter, in the Spencer chapter, about, um, uh, about Jordan Spencer and what the, uh, some of the townspeople had to, to, to say about, about him in relation to race. And I just want to read a, an excerpt uh, uh, quickly. And these are, you recount uh, uh, some statements that people had to say about uh, what it meant to be white and racial mixing in relation to Jordan Spencer. And here it says, even people who cared about racial mixing understood the convenient notion that unless it was impossible to say otherwise, everyone in Johnson County was white. Quote, I always was in sympathy with the man, said a Paintsville businessman about Jordan Spencer, because he tried to be a good man and tried to avoid looking like a darkie, and because he wanted to raise himself up instead of lowering himself. Now, to me, when I read that passage, I started thinking about all the kinds of ways in which these, uh, not only um, Jordan Spencer, but other characters um, uh, may have actively tried to disassociate themselves from uh, black people. Um, one, one of the things that's interesting about Spencer, is, if I remember correctly, is that he's the one that colored his hair red. Yeah. And um, so these other uh, uh uh, people, especially the gentleman, uh, the businessman here, is is citing characteristics that were ideologically or traditionally associated with white people, trying to raise their class status and trying to avoid looking like a black person. And I'm just wondering if you could speak um, just a little bit more about that in relationship to uh, some of the other uh, families or characters. Sure. So um, 
I, I should start by saying Jordan Spencer, uh, his, his story is a remarkable story. He moved into, uh, Spencer family moved into a, uh, what we would call an Appalachian mountain holler uh, in eastern Kentucky uh, in the late 1840s, early 1850s. And Jordan Spencer was visibly dark. And as you said, he, he dyed his hair red, but the hair dye technology of the 1840s and 1850s isn't what it is today. So every time he sweat, his sweat would run red. And he was a manual laborer uh, and prided himself on working hard every day. So just about every minute of the day, he was sweating. So he was constantly reminding the people around him that he was different. Uh, but at the same time, they were still able to classify him as uh, uh, just a, a dark white man. Uh, and you know, for for the uh, for the Gibsons, uh, they're in terms of appearance. Uh, by the late 18th century, there was uh, not too much of a. Uh, a, not too much controversy over their appearance. I mean, they still talked about their dark complexions, uh, uh, you know, generations later. But uh, it, it was thought that, uh, in the words of one person, they, they had uh, too much red and white in their skin uh, to be uh, uh, thought of as black, uh, that they were actually lighter than half the people in the South Carolina legislature. Uh, the walls, uh, they were uh, uh, in the early 20th century, uh, they, they too were uh, very light-complected. Uh, and for them, it was less a, a question of changing their appearance and more about just keeping their mouths shut. Uh, you know, for, for them, for many years, the, the generation uh, that uh, passed for white, uh, the generation of OSB Wall's children, uh, you know, for many years they were very much a part of Washington, D.C.'s African-American community. They were proudly African-American. Uh, and they, uh, in a way, being as light as they were, uh, I was reminded reading about their experience of uh, Adrian Piper's essay, uh, Passing for White, Passing for Black, mm -hmm. uh, that they must have spent, you know, every day uh, articulating that they were black to anyone who would reflexively categorize them as white in a segregated Washington, D.C. So you could imagine uh, to police officers, to riders on streetcars, to shopkeepers, uh, you know, this was their life right up, right up until they decided to move away and change their names and, and, uh, and establish themselves as white. Mm -hmm. One uh, literary critic who um, wrote an introduction to Nella Larson's passing, Mae Henderson, um, said that one of the interests that contemporary readers have in novels about racial passing or uh, nonfiction books even about racial passing is that they educate us ethnographically about uh, black life. Uh, 
Your book is part law, part history, and in some ways because it uh, details, at least in the introduction and in the um, uh, epilogue, uh, reactions uh, uh, of, of some of the descendants of the families that you talk to, it, it could be also considered ethnographic in some ways. Could you talk to us about those parts? Sure. So, uh, I mean, in, in terms of the history, I view this story as a history of race in the United States from the 18th century, well into the 20th century, essentially told through the stories of these three families who, in their own experience, uh, they call into question the very notion of race itself. Uh, So it's a history of race. It's a history of ideas about race as they've changed over time. Uh, And all the while, even as race moved from uh, being something about uh, uh, being really about slavery and freedom uh, to assuming it's more uh, uh, biological and hardline notions of segregation. Uh, Even as that was happening, uh, one thing I wanted to uh, make a constant was that uh, people were always crossing the color line and becoming white that even some of the uh, uh, whitest people, uh, some of the most quintessentially white people, uh, most quintessentially privileged people in America uh, had African-American ancestry. Uh, so you know, as, as history, I, I wanted to tell a story of change over time, uh, but I also wanted to uh, tell a story uh, about the illusions of race. Uh, I also wanted to talk about how, uh, you know, we talked today about how race is a social construction, uh, and one of the uh, ways that law is particularly useful in this story is that you can see how uh, law is a place where lots of people 100 years ago, 150 years ago, talked about race as if it were a social construction. I mean, people would literally use language like, we all know race is nothing but a legal fiction. Uh, and at the same time, those people could be the proponents of more hardline definitions of race. Uh, they could be the proponents of segregation. Uh, so the, you know, the, the law of, of race uh, it, you know, it's a story of, uh, uh, well, it's a story about the Vex connection uh, between liberty and equality. Uh, it, in a way, what, what was really interesting for me is that uh, the moments where we see people talking about racial difference in uh, recognizably modern ways they're talking about it in terms of something that is born in the blood. Uh, these are moments of, uh, uh, of liberty for African Americans. Right around the revolution uh, into the early 19th century, as a lot of people are freeing African Americans in the South, and as the North is emancipating African Americans, uh, just before the Civil War, uh, as abolition is, is reaching a fever pitch, and after the war, uh, as African Americans are, are 
working their way towards citizenship uh, uh, and full citizenship in the U.S. I mean, these are moments of uh, of when, in a way, new ideas about inequality are are are, are forged. Uh, so, my discussion of the law is uh, a discussion of uh, again a discussion of evolution and change. Uh, it's a discussion of how uh, courts often knew that communities were letting African Americans assimilate in as white people, uh, and at the same time uh, let them uh, uh, let them do it. Uh, courts often backed away from uh, really interfering with with community processes, uh, and it, it seems like the real effect of that was by helping white communities remain secure in their status by minimizing the fear that they could be uh, that people could be reclassified. Uh, in a way, it, it enabled the, the, these white communities all over the South to uh, really embrace the, the hardline ideologies of, of Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. and, and I didn't mean to throw um, ethnography in there um, no, no, to, to, I, to, to insist that the book is ethnographic. Right. Well, I, I did you know, travel to just about every place I wrote about. Uh, it was very important to me to write this history through the eyes of the people who were participating in it. Uh, so I, I did think uh, about the sociological, anthropological uh, elements of the story. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so uh, uh, no need to apologize for that. It certainly comes through to me, especially when you quote uh, uh, some of the uh, contemporary descendants of uh, the families that you um, uh Write about. I'm thinking in particular about uh, William LeBac. Le, Le am I pronouncing that cor correct? Mm -hmm. And yep. uh, Thomas Murphy, um, mm -hmm. both of whom can be considered um, uh, enthusiasts of their personal genealogy, um, and in some ways um, had interesting responses to um, the suggestion that they're that they had black ancestry. Could you talk about that? Sure. I, I learned a lot from the, the living descendants who I spoke with. I mean, initially, when I, I first traced families to the present, uh, I wondered if I'd be breaking the news to anyone. Uh, you know, would I be kind of, you know, driving the back roads to the south and knocking on people's doors and saying, you know, guess what? Uh, and uh, what I found, which was really interesting, is that uh, almost everybody. Uh, by the time I first contacted them, you know, starting in 2004, 2005, uh, and moving onward, uh, uh, they had already heard something in the five or ten years previous uh, to hearing from me. Uh, in a way, it, it was like the, the secrets of the generations were no match for Ancestry.com. Uh, you know, all it took was one genealogy buff in any family, and every family seems to have one. And people would have these stories about uh, uh, going to the library, seeing a search of the 1850 census being available online, typing in their great-great-grandfather's name, 
and then having to call over the librarian to ask, you know, what do the letters M-U-L uh, uh, mean uh, if they're written by my great-great-grandfather's name? And, you know, M-U-L standing for mulatto as a census designation from 1850 to 1920. Uh, so all these families had had some amount of time to think about and process this information. You know, they'd all had their revelatory moments. And the, the range of responses, I mean, it, it was really huge. Uh, so on one end, there were, uh, there, there was someone I spoke to who said, you know, learning that my uh, great-great-grandmother was a free woman of color in Louisiana, uh, this is not somebody I, I wrote about in the book, uh, uh, it, you know, really changed my outlook on life, changed the way I uh, think about issues of race and civil rights, and I now, uh, it's given new meaning to my life, I now give talks to African-American churches about the illusion of race. Uh, that was one end of the spectrum, and on the other end was uh, someone like uh, uh, Thomas Murphy, who, uh, when I spoke with him, he said, you know, learning that my great-grandfather was Orndotta Simon Bolivar Wall uh, made me more racist than I had ever been before. I mean, in a way, he was, you know, to convince himself that he was still white. Uh, it, it was like he had to, he felt compelled to, to hate blacks. But what was really interesting, even about that response, was you know, Thomas Murphy uh, uh, told me this was his response, and at the same time, he couldn't stop researching his connection to the Wall family. Mm. Uh, in a way, he is, uh, you know, one of the most knowledgeable people about the Wall family genealogy, and he's posted that information, so he's really tried to share it with people. And so even as he was very conflicted with the story, he was still very committed to recovering it, and it clearly gave his uh, life a... a you know, a connection to uh, uh, a big American story that was very important to him. Uh, so it, it was, uh, it, you know, there were a lot of very interesting and intense conversations with a lot of people, and um, uh, I really learned a lot from them. Now, among the um, uh, several... Uh, descendants, living descendants that you talk about, William LeBach and uh, Frida Goebel and Thomas Murphy among them. Uh, Murphy, Murphy's comments are striking to me because even though he may be conflicted, he makes some very unequivocal statements. I want to, I'm going to say two of them. Uh, one is, and you say that, um, uh, after learning that he was a descendant of the Wall family, he marched into an Atlanta airport, rent a car where he was employed, and told his black co-workers, quote, you can't call me a racist because I is one of you. And uh, later, uh, he says that he attributes Wall's success to his white father. And he says, the way I see it, I descend I don't descend from a black man. I descend from a white man who couldn't keep his jeans in his pants. Now, the reason why that's 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 striking is because it does seem in some ways to um, even though he 
is in, uh, interested in, in, the, in researching the genealogy is actively also um, resisting um, um, uh, black heritage. Right. No, I, you know, there are uh, his words and his actions. And I think, uh, uh, you know, sometimes they're at odds with each other. Uh, you know, he was uh, someone who, you know, was, was very candid and very honest about, uh, you know, what his reactions have been. Uh, and, you know, I think it really shows that, uh, you know, we're, we're in this supposedly post-racial era. Uh, I guess when I first uh, started speaking with Mr. Murphy, it, it was, a, I guess it was in the pre-post-racial era. Uh, and uh, so even in this post-racial era, I mean, this is, this is a moment where you can really see how race and racial difference and whiteness still matters. Uh, you, you know, the... Uh, uh, you know, there's so many ways that uh, whites can talk about, uh, uh, you know, moving past race, uh, and they can talk about colorblindness. They can talk about, uh, uh, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, just open up uh, any number of recent Supreme Court opinions. And this is uh, people talking about how race is over, uh, but. You know, talking to Thomas Murphy, talking to all of these descendants, you really see how uh, the uh, literal relationship between blacks and whites, uh, you know, the, the idea that they have African-American ancestry, really see the transformative power of, of that knowledge. In a moment, I'm going to ask you if you would... Um read an excerpt from the book to give us a sense not only of the content, but of the literary quality. But before that, I want to say to you just how delight, delighted I am um, that you've written this book and just how wonderful I, f I find the writing to be. It's engaging. It's vivid. It's clear. It's, it's really a masterpiece to me. It's, it's um, exquisitely um, uh, written. The structure with the alternating chapters going from the Wall family to the Gibsons to the Spencers and going back and giving us Civil War history, I think it's just it's it's wonderful. And I I was um, interested <laughs> in finding out just how a lawyer comes to write so well. Right. Well, thank you. It's that it, your words are so kind. Um, uh, I it, I mean, in a way, I I think. Um, uh, it, being, I, well, I, I started out as, uh, before a I was a lawyer, I was a journalist. Uh, and in college, I wrote for the campus newspaper. And then uh, after college, I uh, worked for a year as a, a stringer in West Africa uh, and then as a reporter in Southern California for a couple of years. And, you know, I, I wrote stories about all kinds of people in all kinds of places uh, and I wrote lots of them. Uh, when I was a staff writer for the Pasadena Star News, I you know, wrote pretty much a, a story every day. And it ranged from stories about uh, uh, you know, gangland murders uh, to uh, you know, a, uh, I, I once covered a um, acetown picnic where 
and all the Bassett Town fanciers of Arcadia, California, all gathered together at a park. Uh, you know, I parked a block away, and and you know the smell hit me as soon as I got out of my car. Uh, and you know the they, they you know would dress up their Bassett Towns, and and the winner of the best costume competition was was uh, a Bassett Town dressed as Scarlett O'Hara. Uh, so. You know, writing about so many different kinds of stories, I, I think, really helped me develop my writing. Then I think, actually, as a lawyer, uh, you know, a huge part of being a lawyer is taking uh, a set of abstract ideas and uh, relating them to a very particular set of circumstances. Uh, and so, you know, every time I worked on a case, uh, it was always an exercise in storytelling. And I think a lot of uh, wonderful writers, a lot of serious nonfiction writers today are uh, trained as lawyers. And I, I think the uh, ability to uh, take uh, uh, individual stories and uh, use them as uh, a lens for uh, viewing and thinking about uh, larger issues. I mean, that, that's really a lawyer skill. Mm -hmm. And I want to tell you what's one of the, my favorite um, sections in the book. Um, mm -hmm. One I can't wait to talk about uh, in the class that I'm going to uh, be teaching your your book in next semester. Um, it's the excerpt uh, when the slave catchers uh, come to Oberlin, Ohio, the college town. And uh, they uh, do uh, they are successful in in kidnapping uh, one um, black person. I can't remember his name exactly. John Price. Yes. And then at first, I mean, it's it's a fully dramatic scene, uh, wonderfully rendered. Uh, you think that they're going to get away. They're 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 ten miles out outside of the town, and um, uh, Price lets out a yell to people who are passing by and you think they either ignore him or don't hear him and come to find out the, you know, uh, one of the, uh, uh, one of them goes back to town and tell them that the slave catcher gets price and they rise up and, and go to this place. And I mean, the drama on how it unfolds and, and, and how he gets uh, let out, it's, it's really, it's really dynamic and, and very interesting. Uh, and the book is filled with, um, with uh, episodes like that, so can you uh, can you read to us? Sure, sure. Um, well, uh, uh, let's see. I will. Uh, I can read to you a um, uh, section from that chapter uh, if you'd like, uh, uh, and it uh, uh, introduces. Uh, Warren Dottis, Simon Boulevard Wall, uh, who's one of the main figures in, in this book. Uh, and he eventually winds up in Washington, D.C. As, um, uh, as a lawyer and really one of the pictures of the rising black political class in Washington during Reconstruction. Uh, but before that, uh, he was uh, born a slave. Uh, his father had been his master. Uh, so in some ways, it's a, a familiar story. Uh, but then his, his father, when, when Orndottis Wall was uh, about 13 years old, his father freed him and his brothers and sisters and sent them to Ohio to be raised by radical Quaker abolitionists. And uh, 
he, uh, it, it, when I researched the question, it seems like he kept their mothers in bondage. Uh, and so eventually, uh, Orndottis Wall wound up in Oberlin, Ohio, which was uh, the most abolitionist town in America. And um, uh, he worked as a shoemaker. All day long, Orndottis Simon Boulevard Wall worked with skin. The Oberlin shoemaker cut it with sharp blades, punched holes in it with awls, pinned it to last, and stitched it to soles. He shaped, molded, and manipulated it until it became something else. Every day, skin surrendered easily to his hands. It was tanned and dyed, polished black and every shade of brown. In a town where just about everyone was preoccupied with the fine line between slavery and freedom, Wall's expertise in matters of color and skin conferred upon him a certain authority. Asked once whether he knew the colors by which people of color were classified, the short, stocky man answered simply, there were black, blacker, blackest. The day Anderson Jennings appeared, this is the uh, Kentucky slave catcher who, who comes to Oberlin. The Kentuckian was the talk of Oberlin. The consensus opinion was that he was a slave catcher. But whom was he after? When would he strike? And what was the best way to resist? His presence was almost certainly topic number one in Wall's shop on East College Street in the center of town. It was cooler than the blacksmith shop, quieter than the sawmill, and less rank than the livery stable. In other words, it was a congenial place to discuss politics. And amid the workbenches littered with leather scrap, politics for Wall and his partner David Watson meant abolitionism. Watson, an Oberlin graduate, was an active member of the Ohio Anti-Slavery Society, and Wall had spent his life walking the line between liberty and bondage. Freed by their father and sent north, Wall and his brothers and sisters had been raised in comfort by their Quaker guardians in Harveysburg, Ohio, and treated as members of the town's finest family. But they lived with the knowledge that their mothers remained in bondage. As they came of age, Wall's older brother, Napoleon, used his inheritance to establish himself as a farmer on 1,300 acres nearby. A younger sister, Caroline, moved north to enroll at Oberlin. Born Dottis, known as OSB or Dottis, decided to learn a trade. With his pick of professions, he settled on shoemaking. Curious choice. By the 1840s, shoemaking was not just a lowly line of work. It was a dying craft, rapidly becoming a mechanized industry centered in mill towns like Lynn and Haverhill, Massachusetts. As slaves, the Wall children likely wore cheap shoes mass-produced in New England factories. Yet the trade held a certain allure for Orndottis. It was neither loud nor exhausting nor dangerous and left plenty of time for thinking, reading, and talking. With surprising regularity through the 18th and 19th centuries, shoemakers turned to radical ideas. The last surviving member of the Boston Tea Party was a shoemaker. The disproportionate number of the mob kicking down the Bastille's doors had stitched their own boots. Philosophic cobblers, formed the vanguard of English rioters in the 1830s and German revolutionaries in 1848. They wrote political poetry and proudly circulated books with titles such as Lives of Illustrious Shoemakers. For Orndottis, perhaps the most illustrious of them all was George Fox, 
revered in Harveysburg, who started life as a shoemaker's apprentice and went on to found Quakerism. After the Fugitive Slave Act passed, Wall helped start a local abolitionist society. Across the North, slavery's opponents were resolving to do whatever they could to keep runaways free. To their minds, the law of the land had been so corrupted that there was no reason to obey it. The Fugitive Slave Act was little more than a hideous deformity in the garb of law, the abolitionist orator John Mercer Langston told the Convention of Black Ohioans in 1851. His brother Charles, a schoolteacher in Columbus who would be the namesake of his grandson Langston Hughes, called on every slave from Maryland to Texas to arise and assert their liberties and cut their master's throats. I think I'll stop there. Very beautiful. Thank you. Can't, can't be Charles Langston. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, I came to your book um, through the New York Times. Uh, there was a piece that you had written um, about one of the fam- about one of the members of the families um, in the Times. Um, do you re- who do you recall that piece? That Randall Gibson. Mm-hmm. Um, so. And this was the uh, uh, great-grandson of uh, a free family of color uh, that had moved from the back country of South Carolina uh, into, uh, uh, into Mississippi uh, at, the end of the, uh, at the end of the 18th century. And I raised that about um, reading that um, wonderful piece in the New York Times to ask, who are the readers that you imagine um, picking up your book? Well, um, I mean, my my uh, uh, on my grandiose days, I, I think you know the people who uh, uh, watch Ken Burns documentaries and watch Oprah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but you know, I, I view this as so much of a uh, American story. That you know, it is the, a story for people interested in uh, African American history and the history of race, uh, but it is also a story for uh, people who just want to wonder. Uh, uh, people who wonder, you know, why uh, we are what we are here in America. Mm-hmm. And. and and the book uh, uh, reads as a, you know, everyday nonfiction book, but it also um, uh, uh, serves well as a book to be used in uh, classrooms that have to deal with African American studies, law, history, uh, et cetera. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. So, uh, it, you know, it was very important to me. Uh, you know, it, it was of natural interest to uh, a wide audience, uh, but at the same time. It's so important to document this, uh, and I just wanted the research on everything uh, down to uh, the the weather, uh, you know, when various events took place, uh, to be uh, meticulously documented. Uh, and you know, I, above all, it, it was uh, a, a way for me to really, uh, you know, see what narrative history can do. Uh, in in telling the story of race in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And readers will be able to find uh, documentation uh, to many of the things that you write in the book in the in the notes 
that are um, very detailed and uh, point to various sources. I mean, it's it's just an, a wealth of information. So I've uh, we've been talking for about almost an hour, and I've taken up a lot of your time. So I want to ask you right now to if you could tell us what you're working on now. Sure. Um, well, I I am uh, working on a couple of things. So I uh, I'm working on a an article project. Uh, you know, after a long book that. It basically was, um, uh, you know, five or six years of my primary research uh, project, and then you know, my connection to the subject. I mean, I've been thinking about this for you know, eighteen, twenty years. Uh, so I thought something a little shorter and more manageable would be a great follow-up. Uh, and what, what I'm writing about right now uh, is a project about uh, lawyers in. Nashville, Tennessee, who argued against integration and civil rights in the decade after Brown versus Board of Education was decided. Uh, and the, Nashville was known as uh, really a, a moderate town. Uh, and it was a place where uh, people could be uh, uh, moderate segregationists without the uh, real hardline political pressures to, to you know, move to the extreme right. And there were these lawyers in Nashville who, uh, you know, were, were very successful lawyers who um, uh, essentially argued that uh, you could, you, there was no need for white Southerners to take to the streets. Uh, they could uh, follow Brown versus Board of Education to the letter, uh, and still they predicted that uh, life in Nashville and all over the South would change very little. Uh, and they crafted a series of arguments that over time really developed into these neutral rights-based arguments against civil rights uh, and against integration that I think arguably uh, has you know, really moved into the mainstream uh, and into the majority uh, with today's Roberts Court. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to, you know, the, the Roberts Court in uh, their Seattle and Louisville schools decision in 2007, uh, which uh, invalidated plans that uh, were uh, designed to promote integration, uh, they quoted a lot from Thurgood Marshall and Constance Baker Motley and Robert Carter and you know the the real architects of Brown versus Board of Education uh, to say you know there's it, Brown only requires desegregation and not integration at all. Uh, but uh, I think the real progenitors of the court's position uh, are these moderate segregationist attorneys that uh, uh, that Thurgood Marshall and uh, Motley and and Carter. Uh, face constantly in court. Uh, and then I'm, I'm also beginning a, a new book project. Uh, and the book uh, looks uh, carefully at uh, a man who uh, Orondata Simon Bolivar Wall really idolized, and, and that was Oliver Otis Howard, uh, who is the, the main Yankee who uh, wound up the Head, he was a Union Army general who became head of the Freedmen's Bureau, uh, really a champion of 
African American liberty and, and equality uh, and is the namesake for Howard University. And uh, interestingly, after the Freedmen's Bureau collapsed uh, and uh, uh, after Reconstruction really started to, to wane, he applied to rejoin the active duty military and he wound up stationed in the Pacific Northwest and uh, one of his primary tasks was essentially to uh, uh, pacify the local Native American tribes. Uh, and I use that pacify as a euphemism. Mm. Uh, and the idea that this man who really articulated a uh, new vision for what American citizenship could be and what uh, the American, the role of American government could be uh, in, in terms of promoting the, the social welfare of individuals and really promoting uh, freedom and equality. Uh, the idea that he could then uh, become someone who uh, uh, forced Native Americans onto reservations and really uh, uh, in, in dramatic and tragic circumstances, uh, you know, the, the idea that he could then represent totally antithetical vision uh, of, of American government, I think is really interesting. And, and I think he really represents and embodies this pivot in uh, American political life from Reconstruction to uh, uh, America emerging as an imperial nation by, by the end of the 19th century. Both of those sound really fascinating, the article uh, and the book project. Thank you so much, Daniel, for taking time out to talk to us today on new books in African-American studies. Thank you, Vershawn. I, I really appreciate this. We've been listening to Daniel Sharfstein discuss his brilliant new book, The Invisible Line, Three American Families and the Secret Journey from Black to White, published by the Penguin Press in 2011. This book is gripping. It's exquisitely written. And as you can see from Daniel Sharfstein's discussion, it is a subject of passion today. Please pick up your copy. Thank you.